This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Marissa Lennox. Marissa Lennox in for Libby Snymer this week, who is off on vacation. It's delightful to have you here with me this afternoon. It is a busy day in politics, and you heard it in the news. After weeks of speculation, Andrea Horvath is making it official. She has thrown her hat in the ring to be Hamilton's next mayor. To join, she had to step down from her post as MPP for Hamilton Center not long after she was reelected. So far, Keenan Loomis, former CEO of the local Chamber of Commerce, and Bob Bertina, ex-liberal MP and former mayor of Hamilton are the two main contenders. It'll be an exciting and contentious race to watch for sure. But first, let's get to some federal news. Former conservative Prime Minister Stephen Harper has endorsed Pierre Polyev to be the party's next leader. Harper took to social media last night to say this. Pierre Polyev was a strong minister in my government. In the past several years, he's been our party's most vocal and effective critic of the Trudeau Liberals. He's been talking about the issues, especially the economic issues, that matter. Slow growth, debt, inflation, lack of job and housing opportunities, and the need to fix the institutions that are failing Canadian families. He is bringing the most new members and a new generation into our party. That's how we win the next federal election. And in my opinion, Pierre has made by far the strongest case that he is the person to do that. So for me, the big question is, will it help? And I'm also wondering why the endorsement, given he's been silent on previous leadership races. We'll get reaction from the panel in just a moment. But first, the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-744-740. And now, the Recovering Politicians Panel. Let's welcome Charles Souza, the former Minister of Finance for Ontario and MPP for Mississauga South, Lisa Raitt, former Deputy Leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, and Howard Hampton, former Ontario NDP leader. Good to have you all here. Good to be here. Lisa, let me start with you. Is this endorsement from Stephen Harper significant, in your opinion? It is. It's very significant. I think what it is, it's a signal to the future. It's recognizing in his estimation, the Prime Minister's estimation, that Pierre is going to win. And as a result, the next part of the evolution is bringing the party together. And everybody respects Stephen Harper within the Conservative movement, without a question. So for him to come forward and say, look, this is the guy I'm going to vote for. I think he's the right guy. And then think about the next election was a really clear sign that Pierre's team is already thinking about how do I bring everybody together? I also think it may be an effort to get a, a, lo- a, a strong win on a first ballot, which, of course, would send a signal to everybody as well that uh, Pierre definitely has control of the party. But he was already the front runner. Charles, did party members really need Harper's endorsement to give their official support to Pierre? Does this help him at all? Well, I think it's going to help Pierre in a big way, uh, because, as Lisa mentioned, uh, you know, Stephen Harper is well-respected within the Conservative Party. Sheree has already come back, however, mm. stating that we respect the decisions by any individual. But, again, Sheree is reaffirming or reaffirming 
that there is need for unity. And uh, while Pelayev may win the leadership race, he believes that Sharay can actually win the general election and win Canada. So this is where uh, Mr. Harper has come forward saying we need unity and we need to stand together. And Sharay, of course, is still pushing back, saying that that's not going to be enough to win Canada. Well, he didn't push back that hard, Charles, because his tone, I found it to be pretty cautious, right? He said, uh, you know, Harper was successful in uniting the Conservative Party of Canada, but he's made a personal choice. He and his supporters are always welcome in the CPC. I, 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 found... I thought that was a very smart thing to do. Again, Charest is coming forward saying, hey, we're all in this together, and he's reaching out for unity, notwithstanding what may fall out. Uh, but he's making people, or he's trying to... I, encourage people to appreciate that Pelayev is maybe too much to the extreme, and that's not going to win Canada. That's the Charest's play, and Harper is suggesting otherwise. Howard, your reaction? I mean, I would have expected him to be a little more defensive, but maybe Charles has a point there. Well, I I think Charest understands how the conservative leader is chosen, and he understands that uh, among some conservatives, Stephen Harper may still have a lot of following, but there are other conservatives, principally in Ontario and the Maritimes, and to a certain degree in Manitoba and British Columbia, who uh, see the picture a little differently. And so I think that Stephen Harper and Jean Charest are talking to slightly different audiences here. Uh, I think Stephen Harper still wants to see his stamp on the party. And, of course, that's part of why he spoke up and why I think Pierre Polyevre is happy that he spoke up. But I, I think Jean Charest uh, says, look, you know, there there are other conservatives that we need to speak to. And there are other voters who are not necessarily conservatives that we need to speak to. So, I mean, this is, you know, this is where you get into the, the very subtle aspects of, of politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, I I think you know because of the way the conservatives choose their leader, because uh, you know having lots of support in Alberta may be neutralized by having some support in New Brunswick, Newfoundland, Nova Scotia, Quebec, and Ontario. I think Jean Charest is is being, uh, how shall I say, subtle uh, and and smart, and Taliavra is is uh, using you know the avenue that's open to him. Lisa, you served in federal politics. Maybe you can shed some light on how common or otherwise uncommon it is for a prime minister to wade into a leadership race. Common. There's no question about it. Um, but I think this is an uncommon race, to be honest. Uh, you know, I was thinking about when Andrew Scheer won or when Aaron O'Toole won, neither time did the did Prime Minister Harper come out and say, well, this is the guy that I like. Mm-hmm. And for me, I think what it points to is that this is a really divisive race. I mean, we know it's a divisive race. If you take a look at what Pierre put out yesterday through some surrogates that, you know, Mr. Charest is a loser. He can't win elections. I mean, that, that is crazy to see that happening within the party because you're clearly generating memes for other parties to jump on in case of the general election. And I think um, for me, Mr. Harper coming in makes sense because I think he's trying to, before the actual results are, are read out, He's trying to calm the waters and, and find that unifying piece. He's saying that he's voting for Pierre. That's fine. And Mr. Charest's response is still on the case of unity. But this has been a very acrimonious, uh, a very damaging, I think, um, race between amongst all the candidates. Mm. Before we get to our next topic, let's get to the lines. Ron in Guelph has a question. Ron, go ahead. You're on the line. Uh, thanks very much. I said at the beginning of this thing 
Polyev can probably win enough conservatives and he's got enough votes. But can Polyev actually win the voters across the country in a general election? I don't think so. John Shree doesn't think so. You got to remember that Polyev and Harper were originally from the Reform Party. So Stephen Harper is just supporting another Western guy um, in this thing. But um, and the liberals are the only ones that are smiling in this whole thing, because if Polyev uh, wins the conservative leadership, um, they're going to go on the attack in the next election. And uh, no matter whether it's Justin or Christian Freeland, um, John Charest, as far as I'm concerned, is the only one that has a logical um, chance of um, of actually uh, winning the next general election for the conservatives. Thanks, Ron. I'll uh, put that to the panel. Charles, uh, it's a good question, but Pierre Polyev is more than just a Western guy. He was a minister in his cabinet, albeit for a, a short period of time. But what's your reaction? Uh, the point's being well made by the caller because it's being said by many others. And this is the question that Jean Charest is putting to the Conservative Party. You know, be mindful that we still need to win all of Canada. Polyev is an Ottawa-based MP, and he is well-spoken. He's very articulate. But some of his views are are a little bit more, um, I don't know, <laughs> uh, complicated when it comes to uh, the issue of monetary policy and economic issues and the Bitcoin matters. Um, and he does inflame um, emotion, which is, I think, what people are also reacting to. But uh, the caller makes the point that maybe we need somebody to be more moderate and maybe someone more centric, someone that maybe more Canadians can, can, can appeal to, and including liberals, because Sheree is seen as a middle-of-the-road guy. I don't know who, what's going to end up happening, but having Stephen Harper come out endorsing uh, Pierre is very uh, telling of the mood and maybe some of the resentment that's deep within the party, because obviously there is some separation as a caller made. In the meantime, Howard, Andrea Horvath has officially thrown her hat into the ring to be Hamilton's next mayor. Your reaction? Well, I think Andrea is going back to the political turf that uh, she is most comfortable in uh, and obviously enjoy. I mean, she is a, uh, a Hamilton uh, supporter through and through. Uh, if you look at her, her time as a as a uh, uh, Hamilton City Councillor and the work she did there, and uh, and I think uh, something like three municipal elections in a row, she was recognized as the most popular city councillor. Uh, so I think she's going back to what she enjoys, what she likes, and what she's very good at. Will this be a cakewalk for her, Howard? Is is Hamilton generally NDP? It's never. I don't think it'll ever be a cakewalk. I, I mean, just because of the times we're living in. Uh, you know, very volatile times. And, and Hamilton now is certainly affected by some of the things that uh, used to affect only the GTA, uh, trying to find an affordable house, uh, trying to pay the rent. Uh, those kinds of issues now uh, extend out beyond the GTA into the Hamilton area and even, even past the Hamilton area. So we live in volatile times. Uh, I think, if anything, things are going to become even more volatile going forward. So I don't think anyone can say, oh, this will be a cakewalk. Lisa, Howard's point's well taken. I think it is likely to be a little more contentious. Former CEO of the local Chamber of Commerce, Keenan Loomis, and Bob Bertina, ex-Liberal MP and former mayor of Hamilton, the running. How does this play out to you? I want to say, I want to reiterate what, what Howard said. I, act, I really like Andrea Horvath. I think she's an absolute 
um, fantastic addition to public life. And I wish her well in the race. And I think she's a fine addition to the race. I think the, the issue that I have though is I'm a little bit, um, I'm a little bit weary of politicians, either from the federal or the provincial level, going back and, and running municipally and taking up space that I believe should be for the next generation of leaders. It shouldn't be something that you are demoted into. It should be something that you aspire to do. And I'd, I'd rather see somebody coming from, for example, a school board to want to be the mayor as opposed to somebody who ran for the, the federal conservatives and decided to go and, and run for their mayor. Uh, of their municipalities. And that just seems to be more of a truism than anything else. So w- when I lost in 2019, the big question was, was I going to run for mayor or was I going to run for regional counselor? Because that seems to be what people do. And from my point of view, it's like, no, no, I'm not. I'm not interested in that. Charles, that's an interesting point and one I hadn't heard. I mean, I am curious your thoughts on how much this actually matters to the general public. Do you think there may be some resentment among voters who say, well, she really wanted to be premier, but she lost that. So she's trying her chance at this. And then to Lisa's point, it's a bit of a demotion. Well, and, and she's a sitting MPP. I mean, she yeah, did win her seat. That. So she's there. So now she has to call it a, a by-election that's going to cost more money in order to her play to, to go back into the municipal race. I mean, She's well respected in Hamilton. People, uh, I mean, she's 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 owned the, the, the town for, for quite some time as uh, as the leader of the NDP. Um, but I, I agree with Howard. It's, it's not going to be a cakewalk. There's going to be some pushback now as a result of some of the issues that have just been mentioned. Um, is it a demotion? I'm not sure because Hamilton is a growing city. It's a very vibrant community, and um, and it has many uh, dynamics to it, which has some complexity to it. So. I mean, I can appreciate her wanting to, to continue to make her, her mark and, and have a legacy of her contributions to public life. But I kind of, I'm with Lisa on this, too. You, you kind of want people to, have to grow into other functions. And I, I don't necessarily agree that one level of government is superior to another. They have authority over the others, certainly. But, uh, you know, being a mayor of one of these major cities is a pretty prominent position. And I wish her well. But it's going to be contentious and there'll be some pushback. Well, and you also won't get that with Bob Rutina, Howard, because he's the former mayor. I mean, maybe it is time for some new life. I I don't think Andrea sees this at all like that. Andrea's always been very clear that, you know, Hamilton is home. Hamilton is the community she loves. Hamilton is, you know, where she does her and has done her most effective work. Um, I don't think Andrea really liked being opposition leader. I don't think she always, she enjoyed always being the critic because she's not that kind of person. So I, I think she sees this as just, you know, returning to her roots and the work that she enjoyed, the work that she found most satisfying, and the work where she actually felt that she accomplished the most. And I, and I think that's why she's doing it. Uh, and, uh, I think, you know, she will be recognized uh, for some of those things. But but again, this will not be a cakewalk just uh, because of the times we live in now. On the line, we have Charles Souza, Lisa Raitt, and Howard Hampton. And to call in the numbers, 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-744-740. What do you think about this race? We want to hear from you. Let's turn our attention now to the big news of the week. Pope Francis is in Canada specifically to address the issue of reconciliation and Indigenous abuse in Catholic residential schools. Let's play a clip. I am here 
Because the first step of my penitential pilgrimage among you is that of again asking forgiveness, of telling you once more that I am deeply sorry. Sorry. So that was the apology that many expected he would make yesterday on behalf of the Catholic Church. And the question for me, Howard, is not is this significant, but will this be enough for Indigenous communities and survivors to move on? And if not, what is needed for reconciliation? And I do appreciate that that will look different to different people. But your thoughts? I don't think it will. I, I, I think the, the fly in the ointment uh, that is still there is the fact that uh, uh, back in 2005, I believe it was, uh, there was a residential school settlement that was, uh, that was negotiated in detail over many, many months. And under that agreement, uh, the Catholic Church uh, committed to raising several million dollars to help compensate those victims. Uh, and, and to help with services like counseling and, and many other services. Every other church, as far as I know, uh, uh, followed through on that commitment, raised the money. Um, but we have this bizarre situation where uh, after soon after the 2015 federal election, uh, the Catholic Church was somehow allowed to walk away from that settlement. Mm. It's interesting because in this program we've had lots of discussion about uh, about ministerial responsibility. And so far, no one in the federal government, no minister seems to know how what was a, an agreement that was negotiated over many, many months uh, that the Catholic Church signed on the line that was uh, given even greater credibility by the federal government of the day. No minister can explain what happened. And no minister has come forward to say, well, you know, this happened under my watch. So I, I think it's easy to, to, to say the words, but until that agreement is honored and, and until the many millions of dollars that were supposed to be uh, raised and then made available for compensation of, of those victims, until that happens, I don't think you really do have an apology, and I really don't think you have anything that you could call reconciliation. Yeah, I mean, it's tough. I, I, as I understand it, the Catholic Church had difficulty coming up with the finances there, but, but I don't know, to be honest with you. Lisa, what's your reaction? Yeah, I, I don't know the monetary side of it either. Um, I am a practicing Catholic. I'm very happy the Holy Father is here. I'm very happy that he apologized. I think it sends a broader message to Catholics that uh, the acknowledgement that what happened in those schools was absolutely wrong and abhorrent, and that we need to do a lot more in our community to reach out and to embrace our uh, Indigenous brothers and sisters, quite frankly. Lisa, but as to, yeah. As a Catholic, does this, does this apology leave you hopeful for the future? I think it's the right, it, it leaves me hopeful for the future because I think practicing Catholics will know that we have a lot to account for. I wasn't raised knowing about this at all. My kids are going to be raised knowing about this issue without a question and that we were at fault because we apologized. And that's extremely important to me. But whether or not the apology is good enough, it has nothing to do with me, has everything to do with the people to whom the apology was owed. Mm -hmm. Charles, we saw Premier Jason Kenney and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in attendance. What do they take away from this? 
Well, I know Jason Kenney is a, is a very uh, strong practicing Catholic himself, and uh, he, had, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Lisa, was actually going through the college. Um, and I've been with uh, with them in the Vatican, and I've actually admired their understanding and, and appreciation of some of the wrongs that have been done over many years, not just with the residential schools, but 500 years prior. And it's horrific. It's great sadness. Um, I was touched by... Uh, the Holy Father's doing what he did, and I believe many of the survivors, through their tenacity, these deep wounds that they've been feeling, they're the ones that matter here. And they seem to be appreciating um, their uh, the approach that's been taken. What's going to be next by way of monetary compensation, I don't know. But this is a big play. This is a big, a big step to try to uh, accept blame, recognize the wrongdoings, and finding ways to, to heal from here forward. All right, let's get back to the lines. Alexander in Scarborough, you are not live. Never mind. We'll get to her in a moment. Before we go there and before I let you go, yesterday, Rogers CEO Tony Staffieri testified in front of the House of Commons. Industry committee committee over the outage that left millions of Canadians without communication for over 15 hours. I was one of them. Maybe you three were as well. But at one point, it was interesting. Staffieri said that Canadians have, quote, alternative and choice in the telecom market, to which Liberal MP Nathaniel Erskine-Smith responded with, are you saying that with a straight face? And he's not wrong, Howard. What do you think? Well, look, I... I beg to differ on the issue that Canadians have choice. <laughs> the fact of the matter is uh, the telecommunications market in Canada is very narrow uh, and potentially could become much narrower if Rogers does succeed in taking over Shaw. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, there are all kinds of problems. We pay much more for cell service. We pay much more for Internet service than uh, uh, you'd find in other comparable countries. Um and, and so there isn't a lot of choice. Uh, but there's also another problem. I mean, these have become basic services. You cannot participate in society now without having some of these services or having access to some of these services. And to have the service lost because of a coding error, uh, let's just put this in, in, in sort of a, a, another, a, 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 for another point of view. If uh, in Ontario, you lost electrical power because of a coding error, how do you think people would respond? And I think, you know, the two situations are exactly comparable. Yes, these are private companies providing this service, but the service is of utmost importance to our economy, uh, to people who need simply need to be able to talk to their family doctor, to parents who need to know where their kids are, et cetera, et cetera. And, and to have it go out like this for a coding error mm. for, for such a significant period of time and then say, oh, well, if people have choice, they can choose something else. Well, we all know that's not true. So that there's a lot going on here. This is a much bigger issue than, than just, uh, you know, 15 hours without, uh, without these telecommunication services. I couldn't agree more. And what does it say about us that our largest telecom company is able to go out for 15 hours? But Lisa, I mean, I also don't know anyone who would agree that Canada has a degree of choice when it comes to our telecom providers. What needs to happen and what would that look like? 
Was that for me? I'm sorry. Yep. I lost you there That's for, for you, Lisa. Okay. Yeah. Well, listen, we tried to do this in the Harper government in 2014. And exactly. we ended up with an all-out war from the telecoms saying that as we strove to get that fourth telecom for to come into Canada, maybe from the United States, um, they took out lots of attack ads. They put publications uh, condemning the thing that we were selling out Canada. And, you know, we don't have that one carrier today. Lisa, you're cutting out a little bit. Lisa, you there? We seem to have lost Lisa. Charles, maybe I'll get you to pick up on that. Yeah, by all means. You know, these hearings are going to bring a couple of things to to fold. One is, um, you know, was it a cyber attack? They're still trying to understand that was their immediate concern and how do you get those networks back. But then the question is, what kind of protocols are necessary? What layers of protection does, does the telecom industry need to have in order to avoid this from happening again? And then, of course, the last one is, 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 is competition adequate? Mm-hmm. And just as the big banks were trying to merge back uh, some 20 years ago, and they justified it by saying, you know, you know, economies of scale, larger is better, we can compete worldwide, and so forth, then we recognized that domestically we were going to put the, a lot of consumers at risk, a lot of small businesses at risk. And to their credit, they said no. And I was in the bank at the time wanting that very merger to happen, but realizing that we would have would have been in worse position. And I think the situation is the same here. This Shaw deal that's before us right now, it's going to be a tough, a tough decision for the government to approve now because competition is not adequate. Mm-hmm. There isn't enough choice. And the cost of service is expensive. And that's all those three indications would suggest that they're going to have to do better. All right. Well, I... Can't disagree with you there, Charles. We're coming up against a break, though. Charles Souza, Lisa Raitt, and Howard Hampton, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. When we come back, Toronto has a new ranking and one that you're not going to like. That's next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Marissa Lennox. All right, Marissa Lennox and for Libby Snymer this week. It's good to be here and happy to have you along with us. A new report from one flight tracking website ranked Toronto Pearson International Airport as the world's worst airport for delayed flights. On some days, the airport has seen more than half its flight departures delayed. Are you planning a trip? Maybe thinking twice about air travel? I can tell you that I have plans to travel in December and it may seem far enough away, but I do not have faith that the people in charge to fix this problem even know how to fix it. But we'll talk about that. The numbers 416 Three six zero zero seven forty toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. What about you, producer Zeve? What Hi, about Marissa. you? Hi, Marissa. Yeah, so I've been speaking to family and friends, and everybody that I've spoken to has said we're going to avoid air travel at all costs. Even speaking to my parents, uh, usually they go to Europe at this time of year or anywhere by flight, and so this time they decided they're going to go on a little road trip. So they went to the states and even back to Canada. And it was really fun. They really enjoyed it. Now you're taking a bit of a vacation soon too, though, aren't you? Are you travel? Are you, will you go by air or drive? Yeah. So I'm going to, a friend and and myself, we're going to go to uh, upper state New York and we're going to drive, you know, we're going to take it as an opportunity to sort of make a few stops along the way. But was that a deliberate choice, Steve? 
Definitely. It was. Okay. Because you just wanted to avoid Pearson at all costs. Pearson, even, you know, Billy Bishop Airport. We know that there's been some issues there as well in the past. So, yeah, for sure. Well, at least they haven't brought the randomized testing back to Billy Bishop as far as I know. But thanks, (laughs) Zeev. Let's bring in my next guests. Martin Firestone, president of Travel Secure Inc. and John Graddock, faculty lecturer at McGill University in Montreal and a former executive with Air Canada. It's good to have you both here. Thank you for having me. Martin, uh, does this ranking surprise you? Not at all. It's uh, a complete what I'll call domino effect that here in Canada, so many things have to be perfect or else everything falls apart. With the arrive can doc requirement, with the random testing now back in place, everything is backing up and it is no surprise to me or my clients or travelers what's happening here in Canada. John, what about you? Oh, I think it's, you know, you're, you're, Martin's right. I think there's been, a, you know, a, the system has to work. Every single element has got to be working properly, and uh, we've seen over the last three months that, it, you know, they still haven't got it right. And I think that uh, we're hopefully looking at a reduction in air travel in the fall to kind of help get this thing right. There's so much to unpack here, but honestly, I mean, uh, first of all, how is it that every other airport in the world is getting it better than Pearson? Second, I also heard that Montreal was second in line for for rankings in terms of worst airport for delays. But just, Martin, you know, given that this has been going on for so many months and we're at peak travel season and the finger keeps getting pointed at so many different people, airlines are pointing at government, vice versa. Who is responsible? Who should be held accountable at this point? I think they all all share some of the uh problems together and you are right about the finger pointing but at the end of the day from even getting your passport which we haven't even discussed to then getting your tickets and then to departing and then to arriving everybody is responsible i don't believe the traveler is rusty and responsible that's about the only one who's not responsible (laughs) but the bottom line is the the infrastructure is not keeping up with the demand, and that's it really puts them forth. Unless they leave their passport renewal until the day before travel, then the passenger, you're right, is not responsible. But John, I mean, you're a former executive with Air Canada. To what extent are the airlines responsible here? Well, I've been, you know, kind of sitting in my soapbox for the last few months, kind of pointing a finger, you know, my finger at the airlines, uh, basically for lack of discipline in terms of really putting together a flight schedule that they've sold since March and April. Mark has done a pretty good job of selling stuff on Air Canada's operations. And there was really a flagrant, you know, issue with Air Canada not being able to operate that schedule because of the constraints. Well, John, you must be on a Rogers service. <laughs> Martin, I, uh, before we... Before we can get John back, this keeps happening to me. Yeah. I swear they're all Rogers <laughs> customers. Um, you know, I am curious to what extent the airlines are responsible. And I raise this because, you know, John mentioned it, but Air Canada have been has been tr- uh, selling a flight schedule to passengers knowing full well they'll be canceling it down the road. So it's a little bit greedy, in my opinion. In many ways, it is. But you know what I like in this, too? Just think of when there used to be a massive snowstorm on any one given morning. Everything backed up. The flights were delayed. The flights were canceled. Bags were lost because you got on other flights. It's almost as if every day since 
this started going back again has been a snowstorm. And that's the problem. When there is a problem like that, a weather delay, you don't really point fingers, okay? But this is happening every single day. The finger pointing had to start ultimately, and sure enough, it did. So this is just what is going on now, and it's not getting any better. That's the problem. Do we have John back? Yep. John, you there? There he is. I'm back. Hey, John, I'll get you to finish your point because I think it's well taken. Just, you know, you you were talking about these airlines and particularly Air Canada selling a flight schedule and then not living up to their commitments and knowing that they wouldn't be able to. Yeah, and I think, you know, that that's where it gets to be a little disingenuous in terms of having the carriers point the fingers at everybody else in the, in the system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and really, you know, they themselves basically have got significant amount of responsibility Passengers just don't show up at the building at Pearson and request a flight. Those people are drawn into the building by the air, by the schedules. Yeah. And if the schedules are operated and offered in a way that doesn't really understand what the impact is going to be on the capability of the infrastructure to handle those people, well, I point the finger at the airline. I'll give the numbers out one more time because I would like to hear from you. Have you traveled through Pearson recently? Um, I can tell you first. Uh, not firsthand experience. I haven't traveled. I've avoided that at all costs. But certainly from people who've spoken with me, it, generally speaking, it's been a bad experience. So the numbers 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. Meanwhile, gentlemen, our federal government decided amidst all this chaos to bring back randomized testing at the border. It's something I've never understood when we have a homegrown problem here. But because what are realistically we trying to keep out? But I digress. Uh, Martin, to what extent is that adding to the chaos? Well, it's not now since it's been taken off-site, adding chaos at the airport level. So that's a good thing, I guess, if you're looking for a bright light here. But it is deterring people who are thinking of coming to Canada or returning to Canada to realize that now, 15 minutes after walking through customs, you can get chosen. And if you do, you have 24 hours to go get that test done. So really important, a quick tip for your your listeners. If you did come down with COVID, you need that test PCR test done so that you can be exempt from this test if you still show positive months later. Really important. But if you did get COVID, you need that in order to avoid having to do the random test within 24 hours. Meanwhile, ArriveCan, John, was telling people they were in quarantine when they weren't. It seems like a bit of a dumpster fire. But someone I know who personally came back, uh, someone I know personally who came back from the U.S. just recently uh, was given a PCR test to take home, but then he couldn't log in, I guess, to Switch Health because he didn't have his password. And he was locked out for four days. So then ArriveCan starts calling him or whomever at the government starts calling him, telling him he's, in, you know, where are your test results? And he couldn't even log in if he tried because he was blocked from it for four days. It just seems like disorganized. Yeah, no, I know. I think it's a, it's a, it's a big issue. I think that, you know, the Arrive Can app, you know, in my opinion, it's still a work in progress. It's really not, you know, it's not ready for prime time. Um, so I think that, you know, there's a lot of work and the government did, did, pro, did promise back in May, I think, in the April, beginning of May. Yeah, they're going to start more, you know, moving it into an app on a, on a smartphone. Uh, but, you know, I think that, you know, there's still a lot of bugs and we've seen the bugs over the weekend that, you know, it's not there yet. So 
the government does see the value of the Arrive Can app for a whole bunch of things over and above the public health issue that they're facing. So I, you know, I think the Arrive Can app is here to stay. It's got, it needs some work. So in order for us to make sure that uh, it does work, we should basically have less reliance on the quality of data until such time as the app gets fixed up. On the line, we have Martin Firestone and John Graddock. And the numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free, 1-866-744-740. On top of all of this, passport delays are now a trending nightmare. I've heard of people waiting months to renew. Is this a staffing issue? Is this a COVID issue, Martin? Your thoughts? it's, It's sheer numbers. I mean, this is the problem you know, it's the last thing we thought of when the last two years happened. We didn't worry about our passport. I almost liken it to a license plate renewal sticker, but the difference is you can still drive your car if you had an expired license plate sticker until, of course, our government changed that rule even. So the bottom line is just hundreds of thousands of people all applied for passports at the same time. And the infrastructure, again, like the airport infrastructure, was not ready to accommodate the unprecedented demand. Well, and Karina Gould, the MP for Burlington and Minister for Families, Children and Social Development, John, uh, announced the government's plan to address this issue. And she proposed, I guess, five additional passport pickup locations across the country. That doesn't seem like it will help very much. It's a pretty big country. Oh, I agree. I know. I, I agree. I think that, you know, really it's a resource problem rather than a facility or an installation problem. I think that, you know, prior to the pandemic in 2018, 2019, the office was issuing somewhere in a range of about 90,000 passports a month. Um, and now they're, and they were doing pretty good. You know, I think you can get a passport. You could have gotten your passport in, what, three weeks, two to three weeks, Martin, I'm pretty sure. But right now we're, we're issuing somewhere in a range of about 55,000 and it's taken three or four months to get it done. Wow. So, you know, and the question is like, what happened to the process mm-hmm. or is it again, a question of staffing and getting the right people in the right jobs at the right place and who have the competency to really do the work that's required of a passport officer. And, and a passport officer's job is not simple. They've got a lot of research to do. And I think it's just taking more and more time with the new people they've got in the passport office and new hires for them to process passports. And it's going to take them three, four months before they get their act together. So, you know, again, you know, it's a phenomenon we've seen throughout the travel industry, the hospitality industry for the last three or four months as we ramp up demand, uh, whether it's at the airport, whether it's at, you know, the hotel industry, whether it's at the passport office, you know, we're all having teething problems getting people up to speed and uh, welcome to uh, the labor force of 2022. Well, and meanwhile, Martin, uh, you know, in, in that same thread, which she posted on Twitter, she spoke about the government's approach as, quote, open and transparent communication with Canadians. And I, I, I couldn't disagree more. You know what? I, I see it from an insurance perspective when people say to me, I didn't get my passport in time. I have to cancel my trip now. Can I make a claim? Absolutely not. You cannot claim because your passport didn't arrive at time. You can't claim because you were stuck in a line and never made the plane. So there's just tremendous issues that never existed before from my perspective with what is an allowable claim for trip cancellation, interruption, or baggage now. So that's a whole other story. But this is most interesting what's going on right now. All right, gentlemen, stay on the line. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back with more. Don't go away. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. 
Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio with guest host Marissa Lennox. I'm back. Well, we've been talking about Toronto Pearson International Airport having just recently ranked the world's worst airport for delayed flights. On some days, as I said in my intro in the beginning, air, the airport has seen more than half of its flight departures delayed, which gives it that ranking. Joining me to discuss this, Martin Firestone, president of Travel Secure Inc. and John Graddock, faculty lecture, lecturer at McGill University in Montreal. And by the way, if you'd want to join in on this conversation, the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. Before the break, we were talking just about the long lineups for passports, let's turn our attention uh, slightly to Nexus, because that seems to be another issue in the whole saga here. My daughter, I'll, I'll use her as an example, she's young, but she's been in the queue for over a year waiting for Nexus centers to open in Canada. And, you know, the last headline I read, Martin, was that there was this dispute over U.S. officers being armed, I guess because they aren't situated behind security. But at Pearson, the moment you pass security, you enter through U.S. Customs, and now you're into the U.S., so I don't really know what the solution is here. Can you shed any light on this situation? From what I'm reading, and that's all I can add to the conversation, I don't think Nexus offices in Canada are going to be here at all, in, not only in the near future, but I, I just don't, it's a stalemate here. I just do not see an opportunity of it opening, which leads us to how are we supposed to renew our Nexuses if they have expired, and I think you are going to be forced to go to the border cities on the other side to get them renewed. At this point, there's a lot of people that used to have Nexus and took it for granted that no longer have it. So that's a real problem at this point. You may have just broke news here because I had not considered that as a possibility. I was hopeful that at some point it would reopen. Uh, John, what do you think? You know, I, I, I'm betwixt and between on this one. I think that, you know, it's really a question of what the U.S. authorities would, would consider to be an appropriate tool given the current state of political or social uh, unrest around the world. And I think that the the U.S. is clamping down. The U.S. is clamping down, saying, you know, it's not going to be you know that easy for you to get into the U.S., even if you're Canadian. And so, we'll, we, you know, I think they're trying to do a, a bunch of things to kind of make it much more... Uh, rigorous and much and much more difficult what do you for think, Canadians, basically. What do you to get think this is really? US. What do you think this is really about, though, John? Uh, do you think it's about U.S. officers being armed, or do you think there's a there's a bigger story here? Well, I think I think there's a bigger story here. I think that the, the question is, you know, in terms of U.S. immigration and I know of U.S. border authorities, is in terms of you know how comfortable are they basically in in, in permitting and doing this work in Canada. And I think that, you know, the, the question is the state of the world today requires to have, you know, a lot more uh, focus and a lot more attention being paid to individuals coming through the system. And so, you know, flying into Toronto and getting a pre-cleared flight going into Dayton or into Akron or into, you know, wherever it is, Des Moines, Iowa, that, you know, the U.S. Customs Immigration Officers in Toronto, um, you know, are, are, are being called upon to be very, very rigorous in trying to clear people internationally arriving in Toronto going to these flights. So they're, they're the workload associated with, with a U.S. Customs Immigration Officer in Canada, manning pre-clearance, uh, is really very difficult, and it's, and it's not getting any easier. So I think that there's a, there's a lot of work, there's a lot of stress being put on those officers, 
I think is, is starting to show in terms of the demands they're making in the marketplace. Martin, it just seems like a bad issue for, in my perspective, for Canada to dig their heels in on given the long lies, lines and delays at Pearson. I mean, if you had more people with Nexus, they'd get through faster. They don't clog up other lines. At the same time, uh, you know, obviously they have an issue with officers being armed. As John said, I definitely think there's more to the story that, that we don't know yet. So that will come out in time. But what I did understand is as long as you applied for your nexus before it expired, even though you didn't get your interview, although you didn't even get it, they are still accepting the expired nexus as long as you did make application for it up to, if you can believe it, 60 months. So five years potentially with that expired nexus. Now, will that change? We don't know. But that is what I'm being told by many of my clients right now. Well, and I renewed my nexus recently and it came in the mail and it was a breeze. So no issue there. It's for the folks that are trying to apply for the program. And as I mentioned in the beginning, in this case, it's my two-year-old daughter because I can't travel. My husband has it. My other daughter, we all three of us have it, but we can't go through the nexus line, uh, John, with, with one of uh, you know, with one party, not a holder. Yeah, and that's, and that's you know, and, and that's a constraint, but I think that, you know, it really is incumbent on both levels of government to, to basically make sure that if they, they're really serious about this program, that they've got to really fix the problem up in terms of opening up the nexus offices in Canada. But, you know, the, the question is, you know, is this a priority for the U.S. government? Is it a priority for the Canadian government? And what I've seen right now is that it doesn't seem to be so. They'll just extend it, and then probably die after five years. Martin, what are you telling your customers in terms of, you know, getting insurance and whatnot for travel? So we've got the medical side of things looked after. Finally, COVID is considered just like any other unexpected medical emergency. You don't need a rider. It doesn't have a cap on the expenses. Bottom line, insurers do not see risk anymore with individuals getting COVID abroad. At worst, a mild flu. They're not worried about emergency rooms, ventilators, and, and half a million dollar bills. So that leaves us with really only two other products that I would have, and that's cancellation and interruption insurance. COVID is still a known cause. So the only reason you can cancel is because you've got COVID before the trip and you will be reimbursed. But you can no longer say, I'm not going to that country because they closed the border. I'm not going here because I'm afraid to go to that country. All those reasons are still out of bounds. So basically cover yourself with interruption cancellation for all the regular reasons and medical, of course, purchase it. But COVID is now included as any other illness. I'm curious, John, you know, that's good advice, Martin. To what extent is all of this affecting travel and tourism? Oh, it definitely is having an impact. I think that, you know, you, you, you look at the recent nano surveys across Canada and the Ipsos Reed surveys, you know, they're, they're all saying like 60% of Canadians basically said, I'm postponing my trip. You know, I, it's, I don't feel good about traveling this summer, this fall. Uh, so I'm going to postpone my international trip at least till sometime later, maybe next year. So, you know, the, the, so the message you know, of congestion and delays and, you know, baggage problems, all that good stuff has is, is really had an impact on, you know, not in, not only international traffic, but even domestic travel. So, you know, there there has been a, 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 a souring of people's intentions to travel as a result of all this noise that we're out there. And, you know, it, it, the question you have to ask yourself, you know, is it is it a perpetual problem with Pearson? Is it always when you travel a person, can you expect these delays? And the answer, of course, is no. You know, most times of the day, most days of the week, you go through Pearson like a breeze, 30 mm-hmm. minutes and you're through. You know, some, it's some days, sometimes of the day, 
that you really end up being in a, ma- a massive bottleneck. And I think that if you time your flights right, then you basically look at leaving in the first flight in the morning rather than the afternoon or late evening flights. You know, you got a pretty good chance of you having a, a, a stress-free trip. It's when you, in fact, look at, you know, flights that are going through Pearson in 40 minutes and having connections. Uh, that's not going to work. So you've got to really be very careful and be very, very, you know, cautious in terms of how you build your itinerary and how do you take into account what's going on at the airport today. All right. Well, we have just a few minutes left. I I have to ask, if you guys had a crystal ball, how do you see this playing out? How, you know, how does, what would it take to get us back to, I suppose I should say this too. It's not as if travel was a breeze before COVID. COVID seems to have exacerbated these problems. But I think the days of romancing travel were long gone. Um, So uh, if, you know, how does this play out then, Martin? You first. Definitely, I've said this for the last six months. Pack your patience. <laughs> Nothing is going to move smoothly. You have to get there early. You have to be prepared to wait and hopefully not miss your flight. And when you arrive, used to be you'd call your family. Uh, we just touched the runway. Pick me up in 15 minutes. No, 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 no. Those days are over. You can sit three to five hours now so you get your bags if you get your bags. So at the end of the day, if you still want to travel, and believe me, people do, they have got to expect nothing to go smooth. And if it does, isn't that a pleasant surprise? <laughs> All right. And you, John, what about you? Uh, I don't know. I think that, you know, the the question is, you know, the, the, the world of travel, you know, when you talk about romancing travel, those days were gone when Pan Am decided to, to pack in its bags back in the 70s and 80s. Um, you know, <laughs> that long ago? Tra- yeah, that long ago. Yeah, it's, you know, air travel has been commoditized. Like it's, it's, a, it's a glorified bus. And I think that, you know, when you talk about bus travel, we understand we all have a mind, you know, our mind's eye what bus travel is like. Well, you know, guess what? Welcome to air travel in the, 20, in the 2020s. And, you know, the, the pandemic has fundamentally changed the way in which we will, in fact, look at processing passengers at the airport and handling them on a flight. And I think that that's where, uh, you know, people are asking me, when's it going to go back to normal? When are we going to go back to the way it was? And I said, never. We'll never go back. It's never going to be the same it was. And it's really going to be something like we saw happen after 9-11 with all of those security checks 20 years later. 21 years later, we're still doing it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, expect the same type of fundamental change in air travel as a result of what we've gone through over the last two years. Hopefully the resources, the staffing levels will, will increase uh, and get people properly trained. Hopefully the, the industry realizes that uh, minimum wage isn't going to make it anymore at the airport. And uh, we need to basically upscale the, uh, the compensation to make sure people want to work in this environment and more importantly, stay, because that's the big issue today. I remember the days when I was, this is when long ago when I was young, obviously before 9-11, when I used to be able to go and sit in the cockpit with the pilots. But those days, yep. days are long gone. All right. Long Martin, gone. Long gone. <laughs> Martin Firestone, John Graddick, it's good to have you. That's it for us today. I'm in for Libby all week. We'll see you tomorrow. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.